Today we're going to pick up with a new study during our Sunday school hour. So excited to jump into a, a new topic. Thankful for really the, we spent 17, 18 weeks uh, in our last series. Hope that was profitable for you. Uh, enjoyed that. Just a topical look at some various areas of theology and how they apply. And just as a change of pace with Rick walking us through exposition of New Testament epistle, um, wanted to spend some time surveying some of the Old Testament, and Aaron and I thought, let's, let's, let's take a look at the minor prophets. So for the next few weeks, what we're going to do is focus on the message of the minor prophets. Say so the message of the minor prophets, our hope is that this time there will inevitably be some measure of, of survey, but we don't want it to be, you know, a dry dates and authorship and Bible background talk. You can read all that stuff in your study Bible introduction. Some of that will come out, but really we want to try to zero in on the message that each prophet or aspects of the message that each minor prophet communicated to us. And so we're going to be doing that by looking at one sort of shot messages or lessons from here over one book at a time. So we're going to you know, take a minor prophet each week and give you a survey of the message of the book, one book per week. And just as a way of introduction, give some minor points here to get our minds attuned to this section of our Bibles. And I'm not making any accusations here, but it's often that this section of our Bibles, the pages might be stuck together. The minor prophets are not where everyone first goes in their reading through the Old Testament. Maybe you're, you're there, and if so, great. But that just doesn't seem to be the case normally. The minor prophets are sort of like the crazy uncles that you know are family, but you don't necessarily want to talk to them at Thanksgiving. Right? They, you know they may have something good to say. They may even have some wisdom to share. But you're a little bit nervous, standoffish, and so you may not go there too often. We want to try to... to change that perception. Why is it that that may be our approach to the minor prophets? There are a few reasons. There are probably more. Sometimes their messages can seem distant. Like all writing, these writings were given in the scripture. These writings were given to a specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose. And they can just seem distant from us. They're in the Old Testament. They were writing to the people of Israel in specific portions of God's dealings with them addressing sometimes very specific concerns, and they can just feel distant from us. Another reason is their language. The language of the prophets is full of imagery, metaphors, and figures of speech, and sometimes it just trips us up. We, you know, the mountain's really going to drip with milk and honey, you know, that sort of a thing, and we, we're just not accustomed to communicating that way regularly in our day. We don't read a lot where everything is in this metaphorical language and figures of speech are not as widely used in the same way they were then. And so their language can just cause us maybe to, to lack some clarity. And then just misunderstandings about their purpose. It's easy to think, and we're going to address this hopefully this morning, that the prophets are all about mysterious future prophecies and you need some sort of a decoder ring to read these 12 books. And that's just not the case, but that can cause us to avoid spending time there. Another reason, just their tone. Um, you're looking for encouragement in the morning. You may not turn to Nahum or Obadiah. It's just their tone can cause us to, to stand off a little bit from those. So that, that's just some reasons. You may have others. But the point is, is we often are a little bit shy or timid around these 12 books. So we want to 
want to do some work together over the next several weeks to make us more familiar with the message of the minor prophets and really to see the treasure that they are for God's people and what God has given us there. Where are and what are the minor prophets? Well, first of all, they're, as you probably well know, minor is just simply a, talking about their size, not their significance, right? It isn't because Isaiah was like a prophet with a capital P and Amos was a prophet with a lowercase p. That's not the point. Minor prophets, they're just shorter messages. Isaiah is very long compared to Obadiah. So minor prophets is just length, not significance. And where do the minor prophets fall? So in our English Bible, we have, you know, what we consider historical books that go from Genesis up until just before when we get into the writings or what we call the poetical books, right? Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. And so in that period, you go from creation all the way to when God's people are back from exile in the land under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and they're back in the land before what we call the silent years or the silent period between the ending of the Old Testament canon and the dawning of what we have, the announcement of the Messiah in the Gospels and our New Testament. And the way that our order in our English Bible goes is you have kind of the whole swath of what we may call Old Testament history, the history of, of Israel, and then you have writings and then you have prophets, right? And in the prophets, then the minor prophets are, are at the end. But if you backed up and you just looked at this from the perspective of a storyline, right, the minor prophets are providing commentary back during the period of time that those first books give us in history. So sometimes if we're, maybe you read through from the beginning to the end of your Old Testament or something, it's like, man, where do these fit? Well, the prophets were commentators, at least in their writings, but they were preachers. They were doing ministry in the midst of this history that's taking place. And so it's helpful sometimes to just remember that, that they provided spiritual commentary or the message of God to God's people during these periods of history that we read in the first part of our English Old Testament. So the minor prophets span from maybe the middle of the 9th century or so the 800s BC to the middle of the 5th century or so the 400s BC. So again, beginning sometime after the divided kingdom under Solomon, right, when it was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdoms under Rehoboam, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, and all of that, then through the exiles, right, 722 to Assyria, 586 to Babylon. And then sometime after the exile, which I just mentioned, was Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, when people returning from captivity, the minor prophets span that time. So, you know, 400 plus years. They're not necessarily given, given to us in a strict chronological order. It's kind of loose, but there's debate about the dates, and we're frankly just not going to get into that that much. Uh, we, that wouldn't be as profitable as talking about their message. But Obadiah is thought to be the oldest, and then Malachi, and then there's the, uh, the, more, the more recent or the most recent, the newest minor prophet. You know, there's debate about whether Joel is really, really early, meaning back toward Obadiah or post-exilic, but that's an aside. So that's just kind of a swath of what we have in these prophets. They're sometimes called the Book of the Twelve, because of the way that our, the, the Hebrew Bible put these together and treated these works, the Book of the Twelve or the Minor Prophets. And as we think of these 12 books as a whole, and as a work, we should expect to see a certain unity and repeated themes, and you will, right? Same God, same covenant people that he's dealing with, same redemptive plan, 
And yet, each book is distinct in its witness. And that's why you have 12. God gave us 12, and each one has a particular focus. And so it may be obvious, but it's helpful to remind ourselves that when we read the message of Hosea, that that's not the message of Joel or vice versa. There's a distinct witness from each minor prophet that, we're, that we have in our scriptures. And we want to get at what those messages are during this study. So what we're going to do this morning is look at some important sort of foundational perspective on the prophet's role and the prophet's message to just really set us up to rightly understand the minor prophets for two reasons. One, so that in our lessons that we have clarity about what to expect, but secondly, so that when you're reading these on your own, maybe some of the hang-ups or difficulties or stumbling blocks we've encountered before, maybe we could set those aside just based on some, some of the ways we need to understand or reprogram our thinking about these books by understanding the prophet's role and the prophet's message. And then we want to look at some significant themes, not all significant themes, but some significant themes that we should expect to see as we come to this study, as you read these books, with, a, with an eye toward personal appropriation and application in our own lives. So the prophet's role. Who were the prophets? Well, quite simply, they were unique office bearers in the life of God's people, and they played a multifaceted role for God. If you wanted a very, very short sort of way to, who are the prophets? They were God's spokespersons. They were God's spokespersons. They communicated God's message to God's people for him at appointed times and appointed places. They brought direct communication from Almighty God to his people across a variety of topics, in a variety of historical circumstances, but they were very much God's mouthpieces. Because of that, we should think of prophets, and it's right for us to think of prophets more as preachers than as mysterious prognosticators. They were preachers. They preached an inspired, God-given message that was directly to the people from Almighty God, which makes them different, right, than, than what I'm doing this morning. I have direct revelation. I have canonized revelation that I'm communicating to you. That said, if we think about them more as just these mysterious prognosticators that we're only interested in communicating about the future, we fail to realize that really the thrust of the prophetic message was this moral and ethical imperative to God's people to say, here's what your God expects from you. Here's how you're living. Turn to him. They were preachers. They preached God's message to God's people. So the prophet's role was as a spokesperson for God, not simply a vision caster for God. That was only a part of what they did. Now, how does that then influence the way we understand the prophet's message? Well, as I've already mentioned, sometimes we view them as one or the other. They're either predictors of the future in a very narrow sense, or they don't have, if you're, which none of you I trust are, but on the liberal side of the spectrum, well, the, the stuff they said about the future is really irrelevant, but they were really concerned about, you know, the religion of their own day. But the prophetic message is both. It's multifaceted, and you can't easily compartmentalize it. When you're reading through Joel, he, we don't see Joel say, well, hold on, I'm going to give you a few verses here. Let me put on my prediction cap, and all of this is eschatology. And then let me take that off, and let me turn back over here and counsel the people of Israel. It's, it's much tighter. They flow in and out of prediction and preaching, if we want to call it that way, or prediction and exhortation, so much so that they're, they're linked. Sometimes you'll hear it say, Prophet, the prophets are foretellers. 
and they're foretellers, right? They're foretellers, meaning they, they're, they're predicting the future, and they're foretellers, meaning they're, they're heralding forth God's expectations of God's people. And that can be a helpful way to think through different aspects of the prophet's message. But if we use that to bifurcate the message so that when we read, we're looking for, well, foretelling or foretelling, then we're doing a disservice to what the prophets have done for us. We don't want to have a divided view of their message that leads us to incorrect interpretation. We want to see them more tightly where they used foretelling in their foretelling. They foretold, if, we, if you will, in their foretelling. They were, they were linked intimately, and we want to look at that in just a moment. So approaches that think of these messages as only prediction or foretelling can lead to this really speculative readings that are isolated from the historical circumstances that these prophets were called by God to preach to. But if we take prediction out and we only look at that other side, then we can limit a very important aspect of God's revelation through the prophets, which was his plans and purposes given to his people in order to call them to respond to the very things that he's calling them to respond to. So it's both, and they're very tightly connected. So, let's look at kind of these two aspects. One is, the prophets, they warned God's people and called them to repentance. So as we may say again, the forth-telling portion of this, they, they warned God's people and they called them to repentance. The primary concern of the prophets, and when we read the minor prophets, the primary concern of the minor prophets was Israel's relationship with the Lord. And so their message is, again, with, with lots of imagery and visions, of course, of the future and foretelling of things to come, their concern was to call for heart change and the resulting behavioral change that needed to happen in God's people. That's their main concern. Israel's relationship with the Lord. So when you read the Proverbs, there sh- or the Minor Prophets, there should be this sense in where we're reading about Really a call to anyone who would say that they're God's people about having a heart for him. Now, of course, we've got some gap, some distance to cover to take the message and application from what it meant at 800 BC to a particular situation to us. But the, the, really the spirit of what the prophets are doing is calling God's people to consider their relationship or turn back to their relationship or to continue in steadfastness in their relationship with the Lord. Another... Another portion of that was the, the prophets really acted as God's prosecuting attorneys. They, they called God's people to give an account to their transgression of the law. Say, so what was the standard for their prosecution? The Mosaic law. A very important aspect to understanding the prophets and having in the background when we read the prophets is what God commanded to the people of Israel through the Mosaic law. And to think of the prophets as calling God's people to account to that. In other words, their judgments for their sin, right? We read and we see lots of judgment over sin and lots of calling out of iniquity. And all of that was based on what God had called his people to, the Mosaic law. It's not, I can remember a time reading through the Minor Prophets and sort of thinking that each one was like this new portion of time in the history of God's people. And that at this particular time, Joel... The people were really bad at at this and sinning in this way. And so Joel decided those were the things that he needed to talk about. And 
Okay, that makes sense. And God gave a specific word to Joel, and then he said, you know, you're guilty of iniquity in these ways. Well, the guilt of their iniquity that Joel is calling them to account for or any of the minor prophets is not isolated. It's connected to the covenant requirements that God gave the people way back at Sinai. Right? So the Mosaic law is very important as a background to understanding the prophets as God's prosecuting attorneys. Really, familiarize yourself with Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. The covenant blessings and the covenant curses. And the more that you're familiar with those portions of Scripture, the more you'll be able to rightly understand the message of the prophets. Because when the prophets stood in front of God's people and said, cursed are you because of, or God is bringing this curse to the land or to you because of, it was in relationship to those things that God had said long ago, the Mosaic Law. Similarly, when he said, do this and there will be blessing and restoration, same thing. Those promises that God had long before set forth. So you had obedience will bring blessing, disobedience will bring cursings. That's what you see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And that's what the prophets stood in front of the people and called their attention to. So they weren't isolated new messages. The legal basis for these charges, and, and sometimes there's very legal courtroom language used in the prophets, where God stands to judge and he calls out indictments against the people through the prophets based on this law that he had given through Moses. So it's very important to understand that as a, as a background. And so within that framework or that understanding, then we see that the message of the prophets contained really announcements of near time fulfillment, things that would happen within their history, both judgments and curses for their disobedience or blessing for their repentance, and then this end time fulfillment of covenant restoration blessings, which would be an ultimate fulfillment of what you see in Deuteronomy, which is when the Lord's people have new hearts and they're fully restored to him. And so kind of both aspects of that are, are in the prophets, always against that backdrop. But in addition to warning God's people and calling them to repentance in light of the Mosaic Law, they also announced God's plans for the future. I just mentioned there are what we may call near-time predictions. That's where you read a prophet and they talk about an announcement of the Assyrian invasion. Future for the people that were reading it in, you know, 730 BC, past for us. So still prediction, but for us something long past. And sometimes that causes us a little bit of dissonance as we read future language, but it's something that's already happened. And that's what we may call a near-time fulfillment from the prophet's perspective. He was saying, turn, this is about to come, or this is about to come as judgment because of how you have lived. And when we look at it from this side, redemptive history, it's already happened. That it was an, an area where God executed his judgment, as he said, but it was prediction from the prophet's lips, from their mouth. And we also see what we may call far-time predictions, which that is stuff that from the prophet's perspective and our perspective today is still to come. And that's where when we read in the prophet's things that we would call, that's the ultimate consummation of God's plans. And so we're still looking forward to those things. So that forward look and that unveiling of God's future promises and plans that came through the prophet to those people was to call forth a response from them then, and it still calls forth a response from us now that's related to what he was calling them to respond to way back then. But we join them in looking forward, but with a little bit more information along the way, like, for example, the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing who the Messiah is, knowing what the new covenant is, things like that, that they saw shadows of, but that we see more clearly. 
And yet we're still looking forward to something that they're looking forward to. And so they, they called for repentance. They called to a, for a turn back to the Lord. They prosecuted sin. They also announced God's plans for the future. And often those things are tightly connected. So what's a summary? Look at 2 Kings 17.13. We have this, really what we may call an inspired summary of the prophet's ministry. It's very brief, but it's helpful to get our bearings and to really take us out of that realm of thinking that would cause us to think that the minor prophets are all about the mysterious future or all about this veiled language. Instead, we'll see what their message was primarily focused on. Second Kings chapter 17, of course, there's context for these verses that you can look at. But for the sake of time, I want to zero in on verses 12. So we have this maybe what we might call a blanket summary of Israel's sin. They served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. Disobedience, transgression. Verse 13, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah, so both kingdoms, through all his prophets and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And he goes on to talk about their response. But did you hear that? What the focus of the message of the prophets was? It was to call them to turn back to the Lord, to keep his commandments, to turn from their evil ways. And that notion there, the commandments to all the law which I commanded your fathers is the Mosaic law. So there in a nutshell is the prophet's primary focus. So we want to see them then if we say this as foretelling foretellers and see their future predictions as serving their exhortations in this message which calls God's people to trust, to repent, to hope, to be strengthened, all of those types of things. So we don't want to ever, as we study these, divorce the calls for life change from the announcements about what is to come, even the ultimate consummation of the age. They all served that message oriented toward the commands that God had given his people, that he expected them to be followed. We may think of it this way. The prophets bring clarity. They bring clarity in two ways. They bring clarity for, of God or about God's expectations and his assessments. So that we may say that when we read the indictments of Israel's behavior. It, it's like through the prophet, God is saying, this is how things really are. This is how you're really living. This is my assessment of that. This is how things really are. And then when we think about the other side, they bring clarity to God's plans and promises. Because he says, this is how things really are. This is how things will ultimately be when I act in a certain way. So the prophets were, they brought clarity. Clarity to God's expectations, clarity to God's plans and promises. And for the sake of time, we're not going to read that quote there, but I'll give you a quote in your handout from George Eldon Ladd that helps just helps us understand the way that these two sort of perspectives from the prophets worked together to call God's people to respond. So 
So let's do a quick survey then of some significant themes that we want you to see as we study the minor prophets. Some significant themes as we look at their message. And I've given you more verses than we're going to look at. And there's way more themes than what I've listed. And my intention, Aaron's back there, let me just say it directly to him, Aaron, my intention is not to limit you or to corral you into communicating about these themes, okay? So everyone knows they just witnessed me tell him that, so he can't say that I hemmed him in with these points, okay? Now, these are just some themes that I think are helpful, and we want to have in the, in the back of our mind as we come to the prophets. What should we expect? What should we expect? And then how do we think about how to apply these messages that were admittedly distant from us uh, in, our, in our day and to our lives? So the first is simply the weightiness of God. The weightiness of God. The minor prophets uniquely help us to capture a sense of wonder and awe at the majesty of God for who he is. The people that they're preaching to had often lost this. And we can have our senses dull to that as well. And through these messages, we're called to consider the weightiness, the majesty, the splendor of Almighty God. Listen to just a couple. Hosea 11.9, God says, I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Hosea 11.9. In Amos 1.2, the prophet says, the Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice. And he goes on to talk about the consequences of that roar. Right? That's, that's language intended to get our attention about who the God is that's speaking through his prophetic mouthpiece. If you will, turn to the book of Nahum. Nahum. Should we nervously look at our tables of contents? Nahum, after Micah before Habakkuk. Nahum chapter 1, I want to read for us verses 2 through 6. Again, just as a sampling of how the prophets help us capture a sense of the weightiness of Almighty God. The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him. And the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. I'm going to come back and read verse 7 in just a minute. But just the language, the weight, the splendor, the, the power, 
of Almighty God communicated just as the introduction to Nahum's message. The minor prophets can help us capture a sense of the weightiness of God. Over 25 years ago, David Wells said this. He gave this assessment of evangelicalism. He said, this is, this is 1994. He said, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique. It's not insufficient organization or antiquated music. And those who want to squander the church's resources bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood that is spilling from its true wounds. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. He later calls this problem God's weightlessness. He said God rests without consequence or inconsequentially, without weight, without gravitas, without majesty and splendor and awe, which is rightly due him. And the prophets help call us back to that. They're a powerful reminder of the God with whom we have to do. And they serve us well in that way. Another theme is the sinfulness of sin and the seriousness of looming judgment. The sinfulness of sin and the seriousness of looming judgment. One of the reasons we said at the beginning that we often are a little hesitant to come to the the prophets is because there's a lot of judgment. (laughs) There's a lot of talk about sin. And it's true there is because God's people were rife with sin and iniquity. But part of that important message communicates even to us, even to those who know Christ and his grace and the forgiveness and mercy that flow from that to remind us of the sinfulness of sin and the seriousness of looming judgment. I'm skipping ahead, but even in the New Testament, we see where the, the prospect of judgment is to call Christians to press on and endure in the faith. And that's a message for us from the prophets. This is Amos 5.18. He says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord. So the people were looking forward to the day of the Lord. Amos says, you who are longing for that day, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. Now, that's not a message to us one-to-one, okay? He's saying to the people of Israel, you're looking forward to this, but look at your lives. The day of the Lord is actually coming. It's going to be judgment for you because of your sin. It's astounding. He's saying, you're hoping for this. You're looking forward to this. And then he says, it's not going to be good for you. Shocking. Turn to Hosea chapter 13, if you will. Hosea, right after Daniel. The first in our Bibles of the the 12. Hosea 13. Powerful language, sobering language. Read the whole chapter, but just as a sample, verse 4. You know, the sinfulness of sin and the seriousness of looming judgment. Really, the severity and terror of the Lord's God's holiness and his righteous judgment. He says in verse 4, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, They forgot me, so I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lie in wait by the wayside. 
I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chest there. I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. The severity of looming judgment reminds us of the sinfulness of sin and the seriousness at what awaits those who don't know the Lord. If you want to jot down Acts 17.30, it's interesting to look at Paul's message on the Areopagus or Mars Hill when he's communicating to Gentiles. And he says in the culmination of that message, right, that God is calling all to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world through a man whom he raised from the dead. Judgment and the looming judgment before the God-man, Christ Jesus, was a part of Paul's evangelistic message on Mars Hill. So looming judgment is not just an Old Testament message. When we hear about the, the seriousness with which God confronts sin and the severity at which he called his people to turn to him in light of judgment that would come, it's a reminder to us both to press on in righteousness, faith, but also a great and sweet reminder of what we've been saved from in Christ, right? Saved from the wrath of God. When we sing like we are this morning that God's mercy is more and that he doesn't remember our sins, we're reminded of what we've been saved from. And when we read the prophets, we can be encouraged. When we read texts like that, that that is what awaited us apart from Christ. Those are great reminders for our faith. Another theme we, we don't want to miss in light of language like this, judgment or, light, or language about future plans, are the calls for repentance. Sometimes it's easy to read and we see things like the Lord is going to tear his people to shreds and we miss some of the notes of, of calls to turn, right? The final word in, in very few cases in the prophets is judgment. There are the prospect of judgment and then there are calls for repentance. He says, turn. This is what's going to come if you don't. But it's not just judgment. Listen to Joel 2, 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Malachi 3.7 From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Then he says, return to me and I will return to you. There are these astounding moments in the prophets where God calls his people to repent. And he calls his people to repent in light of the prospect for, of forgiveness from his compassionate heart, his grace towards his people. And we don't want to read so fast through the prophets and see so much of how bad it was, and it was bad, and the judgment, and it's real and it's severe, without seeing God also calling his people to repent, to turn, to seek him. And that's where we look at this last theme, and that is forgiveness for the repentant and the faithfulness and goodness of God towards his people. The prophets remind us that there is forgiveness for the repentant, and they remind us of the faithfulness and goodness of God towards his people. Yes, judgment, 
but also restoration. All because of his grace and his compassion and his faithfulness to his own name, which causes him to act for faithfulness for his people. Hosea 3.5 Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. That's the Messiah. This is written long after David. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. That's the same prophet that said what we just read about the Lord rending his people, tearing them as a wild beast. The Lord is good and his people will turn towards his goodness and he will be faithful to restore them. Nahum 1.7, which we read verses 1 through 6 earlier, says this, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Do you see, it? just if we use Nahum as an example, how fast that juxtaposition comes? Where you read of the Lord speaking forth and the mountains trembling and quaking and he's a lion roaring and you have this two, three, four, five, verse six and then verse seven just right there, almost you can, it's just like snaps your head around. The Lord is good. And he's a stronghold for those who take refuge in him. We read and see these, these glimpses and the juxtaposition of the sinfulness of sin and looming judgment and the seriousness of that, but also forgiveness for the repentant and God's goodness and faithfulness. Zechariah 10, verse 6, God says, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have had compassion on them. For they will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. Full of hope and compassion and mercy. And lastly, turn to Micah. Turn to Micah chapter 7. Micah is after Jonah and before Nahum. I recently heard a joke that said Nahum was Jonah's favorite book. (laughs) Maybe that joke will make more sense as we cover the minor prophets and after Ben teaches us from Jonah here in several weeks but it's the the bad news for Assyria. Anyway, Micah, chapter 7. Micah, chapter 7. Precious verses, starting in verse 18. Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Those verses are full of compassion and mercy and grace and also a testament to God's faithfulness to the promises that he made his people. And those verses come in a context where there's news that doesn't sound nearly as sweet and encouraging as that. And those themes that we get from the prophets, we get these, this, this multifaceted view of God's dealings with his people. And it helps us to see how to relate to God, how to trust God, how to 
be called to take sin seriously, how to hope in his future plans, to worship him for his goodness and his majesty and all of those things mixed together. And we just don't want to miss the calls to repentance and the affirmations of his compassionate and merciful disposition towards his people in the midst of what can come at us pretty fast of judgment and indictment. So we hope that this series is an encouragement to you. Not only from a perspective of just general Bible knowledge and exposition, but really to encourage your heart and to challenge your faith from the message of the prophets in our contemporary world as we see all of these facets. Glimpses, right? Glimpses. We're going to do one book a week. We're clearly not going to unpack everything there is to unpack in those. But we, we, I hope and trust that, that we'll be encouraged by taking this, this survey look at God's message through the prophets. At the end of each week, we will, at the end of each handout each week, we'll endeavor to make sure we tell you where we're headed next. The reason being so that you can read that book in its entirety the week before. When I say it's in, in its entirety, I'm prescribing, if you would, if you have time, can find time, try to read the thing in one sitting. If you can't, then read it in multiple sittings. Don't say, well, Myrtle said one sitting and I can't do that, so I'm not reading it at all. Okay? But we'll try to put the book in there so that you can at least be familiar with the, the broad you know, overview that then we're going to unpack in our times together. And next week, Pastor Aaron will be up with a message of Habakkuk. So read that this week and come prepared uh, to hear that message next week. With that, let's pray.